0: got too many. I've got a Bible. i got all these books. i got all these papers. I don't... We need a podium that's maybe this big. Then I'll, then I'll be okay. The reason I have all this stuff up with me today is we're starting a new sermon series today on the parables in the Gospel of Luke. So, for a while we were doing the relationships... Um, but those that series has come to an end, and as I said, we're going to look at the parables. Now, parables is one of those things that a lot of people have a lot of different ideas about. Does every detail in the parable have some deeper meaning? Is it only one big idea? Is it um, how is the the parable related to the context in which it's found. There's all sorts of different questions that people answer differently. So one of the things that we want to do with this series is not only uh, go through the text and learn what God is saying to us, but also to help us as we read through God's Word to understand how to read parables, how to understand parables, and how to apply them to our lives. Now, as I said, there are lots of different ideas, but I want, wanted to mention some books that we have in our library that you can use to help you as you're reading through the parables, and I'll mention them very quickly. There's this little one. It's 80 pages, and it goes through very uh, specific parables by R.C. Sproul, and it says, What Do Jesus' Parables Mean? And there's this one by James Montgomery Boyce with the exciting title, The Parables of Jesus. And then one that was already in our library uh, is um, by John MacArthur. And again, it's called Parables, the Mysteries of God's Kingdom Revealed Through the Stories Jesus Told. The last one that I'll mention today, it's got a different kind of title. It's called The Explosive Power of Jesus' Parables. Tell Me the Stories of Jesus by Albert Muller. He's the president of the seminary where Nick Husterberg went to school. Speaking of Nick, um, you may have noticed that I wasn't with you last week because I was preaching at Nick and Emily's church in Glencoe, Pennsylvania. Pennsylvania. (laughs) Glencoe, Ontario. Where did Pennsylvania come from? I don't know. I used to live in Pennsylvania a long time ago. Anyway, Glencoe, Ontario, when we drove there, we got in such a traffic jam. I think we could have gotten to Pennsylvania faster than than there. But it's a lovely little town, 2,200 people. The church is going really well. They started December 1st. They've got between 80 and 90 people every Sunday now. They meet in the Agricultural Hall. If you were at prayer meeting on Wednesday night, I had pictures. If you would like to see some of those pictures, feel free to email me david at arendale.org, and I can send those photos on to you and you can have a good look at those and see what God is doing at a little church called Bethel Southwest in Glencoe, Ontario, not Pennsylvania. Anyway, these books will be available in our library after the service and Bill is taking care of all of that and he'll be able to set you up with those, okay? So as I said, we're going to be looking at the parables in the book of Luke. There are parables in all of the Gospels, except for the Gospel of John. Um, But Luke, by far, has the most parables. And so the parables that we're going to be looking at in this series are found only in the book of Luke. He has 19 parables that the other ones don't. We won't look at all 19, but over the summer months, we are going to look at some of the more famous ones. The one we want to look at today is probably one of the most famous, and that is the Good Samaritan. And the title of the sermon today is, Who Do You Love? Who Do You Love? So before we look at Luke's gospel, let's bow for a moment of prayer one more time. Father God, we thank you that you love us. We read in the scripture reading, or Lionel read to us in the scripture reading from 1 John, we love you because you first loved us. And we thank you for the love that you have shown through your Son. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. And so today, as we look at this famous parable, we may be familiar with the details, but I pray again that you would open our ears to hear what the Spirit is saying to each one of us, that our hearts would be open and our wills would be bent to obedience towards you. So cleanse my lips now to speak your truth, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So as I mentioned, this entire series we're going to do over the summer. The last one will be Labor Day weekend. Um, They're all coming from the book of Luke. One of the rules that I think is very important about reading the parables, the parables are not like Aesop's fables. If you know anything about Aesop's fables, the one about the, the guy with the coat and the wind and the sun trying to get him to take it off and all of that, those are Aesop's fables. But in the Bible, Jesus uses parables to tell a story. But it's not just a random story where Jesus stops in the middle of the road and says, hey, let me tell you a story. Every time that you see Jesus use a parable, it is designed to expose something, to teach something But when he teaches that something, he always does it in a very unexpected and shocking way. In other words, the stories that Jesus tells are, as Albert Muller puts it, explosive. They are designed to shock you and offend you and expose you for the bias or the, the wrong thinking that you may have. And the Good Samaritan is just one of those stories. So in order to establish the context for this, I need to do a very quick uh, background for the context. When we look at the book of Luke, Luke tells us directly at the beginning of the book what he's trying to do with his gospel. He says in verses 1 to 4 that he wants to accomplish two things. Number one, he wants to give an orderly account Of what Jesus has said and done. And secondly, he tells us. He wants to give us certainty. He wants us to be able to know. The truth of salvation in Jesus. That Jesus is the only way. To have a relationship with God. So everything that he writes in the book. Has to be filtered through that lens. How is this showing us? what Jesus said and did, and how is this proving to us and giving us certainty that Jesus is the only way. So when Luke starts his book, he has Jesus as a baby, and then he grows up very quickly, and up until chapter 9, Jesus spends all of his time up in the north part of Israel, up around the Sea of Galilee. But starting in, at the end of chapter 9 and all the way through to the end of chapter 19, Jesus is on a journey and he's going from the north and he's working his way down through the various parts of Israel to end up in Jerusalem. So then the last part of the book, beginning in chapter 19 and going to the end of the book, is where Jesus is in Jerusalem, he dies on the cross, and is raised from the dead. So the parable of the Good Samaritan comes in chapter 10. And so in chapter 10, as I said, we can't take this parable and rip it out of its context. It is surrounded by material that is talking about discipleship. What does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus? So in chapter 9, at the very end of the chapter, Jesus spends some time explaining the cost of being a disciple. Being a disciple of Jesus is not free. Salvation is free, but following Jesus costs. It costs you your life. You give your life to Jesus. Then in chapter 10, after he's told them the cost of being a disciple, he sends out 72 of his followers to go and share the gospel, and they go out and come back and give a report. And then in the middle of chapter 10, Jesus talks about the blessedness that comes. There's a cost, but there's also a blessing of being Jesus' disciple. And it's, with, it's within this framework of discipleship that we come to this story of the Good Samaritan. And so that is the specific lens that we have to read the story through. All right, so what is the outline for the message today? We're going to be looking at Luke 10, starting at verse 25 and going to verse 42. And we're going to be answering two questions. Two questions for real disciples. So in Luke 10, verse 25 to 37, what we're going to see, the question that Jesus is answering is, do you really love your neighbor? And then in Luke 10, verse 38 to 42, he's going to answer the question, do you really love God? So those are the two questions today. Do you really love your neighbor? And do you really love God? So let's start with that first question. Do you really love your neighbor? Now before we read the text, there's something else that you need to be aware of. Most of my life and most of my wife's life, most of my sister's lives, we have been teachers. And as a teacher, you're, you learn the different learning methods and the different ways of teaching. And no matter where you live in the world, different methods are often used to teach something. Sometimes it's lecture. Sometimes it's discussion. Sometimes it's done with what's called manipulatives. You work with your hands and you try something and you learn by doing. Sometimes you learn by modeling, following after someone. But in the first century in Israel, when you began to talk about God and about spiritual things, the rabbis would meet together and they would teach each other and they would learn from each other in a special learning method. And we're going to see that learning method developed here in Luke chapter 10. That learning method is called rabbinical debate. And here's how it works. The student comes and the first thing he does is he asks the teacher a question. He wants to know something, so he goes to the teacher and he asks the teacher a question. Now, if this were North America, you would think that when the student asks the teacher a question, the next thing would be the teacher would answer the question. But that's not how it works. In this situation, what the teacher does is the teacher asks a counter question. And he asks the student a question to prompt the student to think about the question that they've asked. And then the student thinks it through, and they give the best answer that they can give. And at the end, the teacher We'll tell them whether their answer is right or wrong and tell them to go do it. So we call that congratulations and an invitation to action. So what we're going to see in Luke chapter 10, starting at verse 25, this cycle is going to play out twice. They're going to go through these four steps two times in a row. All right, so let's have a look and see what the text says. So beginning at verse 25, the first cycle, verse 25 says, Behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now you can see on the PowerPoint and the way I read that verse, the word do is going to become very important throughout this uh, story that Jesus tells. What shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now, this guy is described as a lawyer. He's not simply a lawyer that goes to the court to argue cases. In the first century in Israel, a lawyer is someone who is an expert in Jewish law. He would be a person who would read the the Old Testament law. They would copy the manuscripts. They would do a lot of work related to trying to understand what the law says. But in this situation, this person who is supposed to know the law inside and out comes to Jesus and asks him a question, not because he doesn't think he knows the answer, But because, as the text says, he's trying to test Jesus. He's trying to trip him up. He's trying to find a way to expose Jesus as not who he says he is. So step one is the student asks a question. What's step two? Yeah, the teacher asks a counter question. So we go to verse 26. And he, that is Jesus, says to him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? In other words, Jesus says, don't tell me about all the background studies you've read. Don't tell me about the journal articles you've read about this or that or the other. Tell me what the Bible says. Not your opinion, not his opinion or her opinion or anyone else's opinion. Tell me what the Bible says. So what's step three? The answer from the from the student. So verse 27 says this, and he, speaking of the lawyer, this expert in the law, this is his answer. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength And with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. Now, these answers are directly from the Bible. The first part where he talks about loving God, that comes directly from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5. Every morning, every Jewish person who called themselves part of the community of Israel, when they would wake up in the morning, the first thing they would do is they would repeat the first five verses of Deuteronomy chapter 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. He's the one who brought us out of Egypt. He is the one who's taking care of us. And then the last verse, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind. The second part that he quotes is from a completely different part of the law. It comes from Leviticus. Leviticus 19, verse 18. And that is the part about loving your neighbor as much as you love yourself. In that context, it's talking about People who are sojourners. People who are outsiders. People who are passing through the land of Israel. You are supposed to show them kindness and care. And you should love your neighbor as much as you love yourself. So that's his answer. So at this point, we're at the last step. What's the last step? Yeah, you have to congratulate and do some action. So what does Jesus say to him? And Jesus said to him, You have answered correctly. Thumbs up. Good job. Do this and you will live. Now you say to yourself, Wait a minute. Hasn't Jesus read the book of Galatians? I know it hasn't been written yet, but Jesus knows That salvation doesn't come by doing things. It comes by faith in him. Just hold on a minute. Jesus is not a heretic. He knows what he's doing here. Okay? But notice again, what was the initial question? What do I need to do to get eternal life, to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says... Go and do this, and you will live. So that's the end of round one. Now it's round two. So we come to verse 29. And in verse 29, the lawyer says this, but he, the lawyer, desiring to justify himself, desiring to show Jesus, hey, I'm already doing this, I'm already good to go, I'm already on the winning team, says to Jesus, who's my neighbor? Who is my neighbor? Now, this guy's not stupid. He's really asking Jesus the question this way. He's really asking Jesus, who is worthy of my love? Because he's just told Jesus, I'm supposed to love my neighbor as much as I love myself. But who qualifies as a neighbor Who is the person that I'm supposed to be nice to? Who is the person that I'm supposed to take care of? It can't be everybody. And in the first century, there were two basic Jewish ideas. You could either go off and hide by yourself. And in that way, you never encountered anybody else. So you didn't have to help anybody. And you would fulfill the law. The other one was to say, your neighbor is only the person who is in the covenant of Israel with you. So Gentiles, foreigners of any kind, who cares? They are not a neighbor. And so this is the part where the man is really trying to test Jesus. He's trying to expose Jesus to be not part of of the right thinking way in Israel. So his question sounds innocent, but it's actually very cunning. Because not only, he's not really interested in finding out what Jesus thinks, he's interested in testing Jesus. He's interested in trapping Jesus and making Jesus say something that will make him unpopular. So now, that was step one again of round two. The second step is what? Counter question. So Jesus spends a long time developing his counter question, and he does so by telling the parable of the Good Samaritan. And here's what it says Jesus replied to this question, Who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. By the way, when Jesus tells a story, as I said, Albert Muller calls the stories of Jesus explosive. And here's why they're explosive. The beginning part of every story that Jesus tells follows what I would call the norm, the standard way of, of things are. In other words, at the beginning of this story, people all the time went from Jerusalem down to Jericho. Jericho is down on the coast. And when he says go down, the elevation drops over a thousand meters between Jerusalem and Jericho. And it's a long, winding, steep path, a road that you have to take. There are many hills and caves, and there is tremendous danger. The reason that people used to go from Jerusalem down to Jericho because Jericho was on the coast and it was a trading point. People would get on ships and they would take goods other places or they would bring goods in and Jericho was a trading place. So people would go from Jerusalem to Jericho Jericho to do business. They would bring money. They would bring goods. That was the place that you went to do business. So at the beginning of this story, Jesus is telling what I would call a very basic, simple, run-of-the-mill story. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. And you can imagine if once people start to figure out all the people who are traveling between Jerusalem and Jericho either have a lot of money or a lot of stuff. You can imagine what happens. There are people hiding in the caves, waiting. And when they see you come down by yourself... They're going to take your stuff, and if you fight them, they're going to beat you up. And what happens? A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now, that's a terrible story, but frankly, a common story. Nothing is shocking here. That would happen every day of the week. Sadly, but it would. But now the story starts to get interesting. Because the next thing that Jesus says, now by chance, a priest was going down that road. And I can imagine the audience thinking, ooh, a priest. The guy that works in the temple. The guy that offers the sacrifices to God. He's going to do the right thing. He's going to help him out. It says, by chance, a priest was going down the road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. In other words, his response was, ew, ew, I can't go over there. That guy may be dead. If I go over there and touch that guy and he's dead, try to help him, I will become ceremonially unclean. I will not be able to perform my duties in the temple. I am just going to do one of these. I'm just going to look away and go on my merry way. And he leaves. Then Jesus continues in verse 32. So likewise, a Levite. Now what's the difference between a priest and a Levite? Priests have to be in the line of Aaron. They're all from the tribe of Levi. But Levites are the helpers in the temple. They're the ones who go and they clean things up. They copy manuscripts. They do all kinds of stuff like that. But they don't offer sacrifices because they're not in the line of Aaron, even though they're from the tribe of Levi. But they're connected to the religious system of the day. So the audience hears now that a levite comes along and I think, ooh, what is he going to do? So likewise a levite when he came to the place and saw him passed by on the other side. Mm-mm. Not my problem. NMP, not my problem. And so now the audience, because in Jewish culture, everybody loves the number three, they're waiting for Jesus to give the third person that comes by and they all anticipate, who is it going to be? I can see what Jesus is doing here. He's poking his finger at these stupid religious leaders who are so hypocritical and sanctimonious. And the third person who comes by is going to be just a regular Jewish person who's going to see this person and take care of them. And this is when the explosion happens. Verse 33 says this, but a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. Now, for you and I, you just think, oh, it's the Samaritan guy. He's good. He's the good Samaritan. That's nice. He comes by. When Jesus said these words, there would have been a gasp from the audience. A complete and utter shock would have taken over their psyche. Because Jews and Samaritans hate each other. Hate each other. And when I say hate each other, I could go through the long history, but I won't. I'll just simply say it this way. For 700 years, they have hated each other. In the writings of rabbis, they said, if you talk with a Samaritan, you are doing the equivalent of eating pork. The Samaritans had set up their own place of worship on Mount Gerizim because they couldn't get along with the Jews. Jews considered Samaritans half-breeds because they were a mixture of, during the Assyrian um, Empire, the, the people in the north had mixed with the Assyrian refugees, and now they had been involved in idol worship, and Jews hated Samaritans and Samaritans hated Jews and they never spent any time together or talk to each other. That's why in John 4, when Jesus meets the Samaritan lady and he talks to her, she's completely blown away. Why would you, a man, a Jewish man, talk to me, a Samaritan woman? That's crazy. And so in the middle of this story, we have the religious aristocracy, the leaders of the people, the priest and the Levite, they go by and the person who stops and has compassion is a filthy, disgusting, horrible Samaritan. Stupid idiot. Do you understand now how shocking this would be to the audience to see this person is the hero? Jesus is messed up. This doesn't make any sense. Look at what he says. A Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he hated his guts. That would have been what they would have expected Jesus to say. But instead, it says he had compassion. So he saw the guy. He had compassion. But he didn't just say, oh, that's too bad. And then go on his way. What does he do? First, in verse 34, he does this. He went to him. And bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. The oil would be like a medicine and the wine is to disinfect all the cuts and injuries that he has. Now keep in mind, this guy is laying out in the middle of nowhere. The Samaritan goes and bends down to help him. There's every chance in the world somebody's going to come out of a cave and beat him up too. And yet he is willing to go and to bend down and to help this person. And then Jesus goes on and says this. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. So again, he puts the guy on his donkey, I would assume, horse, donkey, whatever it was. And now he's walking. Meaning if the robbers come out, who are they going to get first? They're going to get him. And he takes this filthy, disgusting Jewish person from his perspective or from his culture's perspective. And he takes him to a place and takes care of him. And Jesus isn't finished blowing their minds yet. Because in verse 35 he says this. And the next day he took out Two denarii. You say, that's like what, two cents? No, two denarii is two days' wages. So, at minimum wage here, it would be several hundred dollars. And in fact, some of the commentators say the amount that he paid for the guy to stay there would cover at least 24 days for him to stay at that inn. He looked, he had compassion and he did something. And he, look at what it says, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper saying, take care of him and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. So he's going to keep going down to Jericho, do his business, and on the way back, he's going to settle accounts. But he's already prepaid 24 days for this guy who hates his guts. And after saying this story, Jesus continues the cycle with his counter-question. And what is his counter question? Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among robbers? Who showed themselves to be a neighbor. So that was step two. Step three, the student has to give their answer. His answer is very interesting. Verse 37 says this. He said, the one who showed him mercy... Now, the interesting thing is in English, all the other places it said do. It's the exact same Greek verb here. That's why I have dude. Dude is not a verb in English. But what I'm trying to say is the guy at the beginning of the story said, what do I have to do? And Jesus said, go and do it. And now in his answer, he says, it's the one who doed It. The one who actually did it, the one who showed him mercy. But you notice that the guy can't even bring himself to say the Samaritan is the good guy. He won't even say those words. He won't let those words come out of his mouth. The Samaritan is the good guy. The Samaritan is the one who is keeping God's law. He won't say it. He'll simply say, the one who did it, the one who showed mercy. So, what's step four? Congratulations. But when you look at what Jesus says, there's no congratulation. Jesus said to him, You go and do likewise. Now, again, is Jesus calling for work salvation? No. He is exposing. The man's heart. He is exposing the idea that this lawyer thinks he's got everything all figured out. I love God and I love my neighbor. But my neighbor is a very small group of people. And what Jesus is showing him is you have misunderstood God's word. When God's word says to you to love your neighbor as yourself, you have missed the boat because you have limited who your neighbor is. So we have to ask the question, what does Jesus mean when he says, go and do likewise? What is doing likewise? Because this parable is shocking It is explosive in the words of Albert Muller. The parable tells us that the priest and the Levite had an empty look. And they neglected their neighbor. Whereas the filthy, disgusting, horrible, I hate his gut Samaritan guy, first of all, had a watchful eye. He was willing to see that there was a problem. When he saw the problem, he had compassion. And that compassion led him to loving action. So when the lawyer asked the question, who is my neighbor? The question that he should have been asking was, what must I do to be a loving neighbor? It's not about who qualifies. It's about what am I supposed to do? And what Jesus was showing him was that he does not really love his neighbor. Because a loving neighbor is someone who is actively alert and looking around for the needs of others. A loving neighbor is truly compassionate and kind to people who are in need, regardless of who they are. And a loving neighbor is deeply committed to loving action to help other people. That is an explosive parable. But the story's not done yet. Because remember when he asked Jesus, what was his answer in round one? What do I need to do to inherit eternal life? I have to love my neighbor, but I also have to love God. And very interesting, the last four verses of the chapter talk about that. So our second point is, do you really love God? Verse 38 says this. Now, as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary, who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. Again. This was incredibly shocking. It's not shocking to us, but it would be shocking in the first century. Women disciples were unheard of outside of Jesus. Jesus had many women disciples, but rabbis did not. So the fact that Mary sat at Jesus' feet and listened to his teaching as one of his disciples is completely shocking. But then verse 40 goes on to say, Martha was distracted. She was busy. She, her focus was taken away with serving. She was getting the food ready. She was making sure everybody had a good place to sit. She was making sure everything, all the, the knickknacks in the house were dusted. She was busy serving. And she got ticked off. She got upset. And she said... She goes up to Jesus, verse 40b says this. She went up to Jesus and she said to him, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. She's a lazy bum. She's not doing her job. She's supposed to be helping me. She's sitting there listening to you. She should be helping me. But what does Jesus say? The Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, that's interesting. This is the way to know that Jesus was not angry with her. Whenever in the first century you want to speak tenderly to someone, you always say their name twice. So when Jesus speaks to Martha, she comes to him. But when Jesus talks to her, he says, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion which will not be taken away from her. So, what does Jesus mean? When we compare Martha and Mary, Is is Martha doing a bad thing? No. Martha was very busy. Martha was doing good works. But Martha became so busy doing things that she missed the chance to be with Jesus. Whereas on the other hand, Mary was single-minded. She was listening to Jesus' teaching. She was putting her relationship with Jesus Above all else. So based on the context, what are we being told? Mary is commended by Jesus because she was loving him with all her heart, with all her soul, with all her mind, and with all her strength. So what am I supposed to do? It's a wild story about some crazy Samaritan guy who risked his life to save somebody who he's supposed to hate. And Mary is dedicated to following after God. What am I supposed to do? What does this have to do with me? Well, the three questions come up again. What was the first question that the lawyer asked? How can I inherit eternal life? The lawyer thought that he could do something. What do I have to do to inherit eternal life? But then Jesus tells the story of the good Samaritan and exposes his heart to show him that he could never keep the law perfectly. He was supposed to be an expert in the law, but he misunderstood it and he failed. The only true answer is to become a real disciple of Jesus. And that's the only answer for you, and that's the only answer for me. Jesus paid the penalty for your sin and for my sin on the cross. If you will ask him to forgive you and commit your life to him and be his disciple, you will be saved. That is how you inherit eternal life. Second question How can you really love God? Like Mary, you need to put God first in every area of your life. I'm not talking about. Some people read this story out of context and think, I need to go off to some monastery and live by myself and never talk to anyone. That, that can't be what Jesus is teaching here. Because he's just talked in the very previous paragraph about doing, go and do likewise. But how can I really love God? By putting God first, like Mary, in every area of your life. And it starts with a relationship of faith and trust in Jesus. And once you have put your faith and trust in Jesus, you have to ask yourself, what are my priorities? If I really love God, what am I doing? Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, puts it this way. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Put God first. Augustine shockingly says it this way. Augustine said, love God and do whatever you like. You say, that guy's crazy. How can you love God and do whatever you like? Here's his point. If I really love God and I really put God first in my life, the only thing I'm going to want to do is please Him. Love God and do what you like, because what you like is to please God. That's how you really love God. How can I really love my neighbor? The answer comes from the story. What did the Samaritan man do? He looked, he felt, and he did. He looked and he felt and he did. We live in a world where people spend 90% of their time looking at a screen When I lived in China, on the subway, people would bump into walls, they would bump into each other on the subway, because nobody ever looked at anybody. If I am going to see the needs of my neighbor, I have to be looking. I have to be diligent about seeing who is out there. I have to feel. What did the Samaritan man feel? He felt compassion. Lots of times we look out and we see and we feel disgust. We feel hatred. We feel um, judgment. But when people are in need, a neighbor is in need, we need to feel compassion and we need to do something about it to help them, to raise them up, and to share the good news of Jesus. That's why I'm so glad that here at our church we have food pantry. We will tell you the message of Jesus and we will help you. That is being a good neighbor and that is loving God. That is what we are supposed to do. So every human being, not just people that I like or people that are close to me, every human being is created in the image of God. Everyone is my neighbor and I must love them as much as I love Myself. So look, feel, and do. But the shorter answer and the most important answer is to be like Jesus. There is no greater example of one who saw our need and was willing to go and die on the cross for people who hated him to give us new life. Jesus is the best neighbor ever. And so in his words, I encourage you, you go and do likewise. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you that Jesus was willing To go and to die on the cross for people who had turned their back on him, for people who were in rebellion against him, including me. And he was willing to die on the cross for my sin because he knew it would bring life for all who would believe in him. Thank you that Jesus is the best neighbor. Help us in our lives to turn to Jesus and to recognize that he is the only way to inherit eternal life. And once we have given our life to him, there are two things that we need to do in response to that work that Jesus has done for us. And that is to love you with all of our heart and our mind and our strength. And to love our neighbor as much as we love ourselves. Help us to live in a way that brings glory to you and lifts Jesus up, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.